Well, it's a wonderful thing that we were able this last year to launch uh, preschool right here at Calvary Westlake. Uh, and that has been growing and, and really expanding over the year. And I'm just so encouraged uh, that God is using our church uh, to reach the youngest of families, the youngest of kids. Uh, as a dad of three kids under the age of six, I can tell you that preschool is a competitive business, uh, meaning getting into a preschool is kind of hard. And so uh, a wonderful thing to open up another option for our community. And uh, if you have kids or grandkids, uh, we are filling up, but we have spots still. And so I would encourage you to check that out. Top of the Calvary website, you can find out more information about the preschool at Calvary Westlake. Now I want to invite those of you watching online, those of you in the room to go ahead and grab your Bibles, either a hard copy or a mobile device, and to turn to the book of Zephaniah. Now here is something I've learned along the way, that when you are not sure where to go in your Holy Bible, it is always okay to use your Holy Table of Contents. Um, and the reason I say that is because I say Zephaniah, and some of you aren't sure if I just made up that book or if that's a real book of the Bible, I assure you it is. Um, and, and, and we are going to spend as a church three weeks looking at this small Old Testament book. And I think what kind of throws a lot of us is that for most of us, Zephaniah is not like the thing we go to immediately when we think of our favorite books in the Bible. Well, like if I did a poll of this room and said, what's your favorite book? I would probably hear the Psalms. I would hear the Gospel of John. I would hear the letter to the Philippians. But it is unlikely that almost any of you would raise your hand and say, our old friend Zephaniah is your favorite book of the Bible. And while that might not be the case, I think it's important for us as a church to know that God has inspired and breathed into all of the books of Scripture. And that as we read through the Bible, what can so often happen is we're reading the Bible cover to cover, and then we reach these sort of prophetic books, and our initial response when we are reading the prophetic books is something along the lines of, huh? What? We read through it and we just kind of get confused and so we ignore it or blow past it. And what happens is we, we see these books and it's an unfamiliar setting to us. We don't quite get what's going on. It's an unfamiliar style of writing in the prophetic books that we're not quite used to. But maybe most importantly, when we read through the prophets, we see uncomfortable topics, an uncomfortable view of who God is and how he sees us. It makes us uncomfortable, so we blow past it. But here's what I believe, Calvary. I believe these next three weeks, the word of God found in Zephaniah, the word of the Lord, has something to speak to us. There's something God wants to say to us in this season. And so for three weeks, we are going to sit in this book of Zephaniah and try to understand, try to understand what the God of the universe had to say to them and what the God of the universe has to say to us. So this morning, to introduce us to these minor prophets, this book of Zephaniah, I want to try to ask three questions that will help get us thinking about how to approach these small books in the Old Testament. The first is simply this, what is prophecy? See, when I say prophecy, I think what comes into most of your minds is future telling or, or fortune telling of the future. So what you think of when you hear prophecy is someone who can tell me what the weather is going to be next weekend or who's going to win the election next year. Uh, a prophet is someone who tells the future. And here's what I want you to know, that biblical prophets sometimes predicted the future, meaning that was part of their role and part of their job was to say, this is what God is going to bring to pass in the years to come. But I also want you to know this morning that for biblical prophets, the entirety of their job was not predicting the future. See, biblical prophets sometimes predicted the future, but biblical prophets always declared, thus saith the Lord. Like in other words, Thus saith the Lord is like old-timey Bible for this is what God has to say to you. So what did the prophets do? Their principal job was not to, uh, to predict the future or say what was to happen next. 
Their principal job was to be a mouthpiece for what the Lord had to say to his people. When we read through the prophets, we are reading what God has to say, a God who speaks and has something on his mind and something to say. We are reading what God has to say to his people. That is what prophecy is all about. Not just predicting the future, but telling the people of God what God has to say. So number one, what is prophecy? It's about God saying, or the prophet saying, thus saith the Lord. Number two, when I try to ask this question, who are the minor prophets? I've referred to Zephaniah as a minor prophet. And when we say minor prophet, what we're doing is making a distinction between two types of prophets found in the Old Testament. The first is this, there are four major prophets. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The reason they are called major prophets, it's not because they're more important or better than anyone else. It's simply because they are long books of the Bible, especially those first three, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. You try to read through those, it's going to take you a long, long time. They are called the major prophets because of their length. And then you will meet the other 12, and those are the minor prophets. You'll see their names up on screen, including Zephaniah here. He was part of the 12 minor prophets. And these minor prophets are called minor, again, not because they're not important or not significant, but because they're shorter books of the Bible. Zephaniah is classic in this. If you were to sit down this afternoon and read through the book of Zephaniah, you could get through it in less than 10 minutes. It's a shorter book of the Bible. So when we refer to Zephaniah as a minor prophet, we simply mean it's one of the 12 shorter prophetic books in the Old Testament. And then here's the third and final question before we jump into the text. And I think it's the most important. Why does any of this matter to us today? Because it's really easy to read it and to hear all these names and people and cities and towns that you don't recognize and throw up your hands and go, I don't even know why we're talking about this. And that is the right question. And it is a good question. And here's my answer to it. I think the prophets help us understand at least three things. As we follow after Jesus, as we live in love like him, as we try to be faithful to God in our time, the prophets help us understand at least three things. Number one is God's nature. Like who is God and what is he really like? We just spent a certain amount of time here in this room praising and worshiping God, but who are we actually praising and worshiping? What is this God actually like? The prophets help us understand that. Number two is God's heart. What does God care about? What is God interested in? What makes him angry? What makes him happy? What delights him and what frustrates and angers him? This is what we need to understand about God. Who is he? What is this heart all about? And number three, it's God's actions. How does God act in the world? How does he behave? When does he insert in himself and when does he not? How is God's sovereignty playing out all over the world today? This is what the minor prophets help us understand. They help us understand God's nature, God's heart, and God's action. And I hope you see that here this morning in Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1 begins with these words. We'll start in the first chapter. and the first verse, for those of you who have a Bible in front of you, it says this. It says, the word of the Lord. This is how many of the prophetic books begin. They begin not with the author. Notice it doesn't begin with Zephaniah. It begins with the word of the Lord. It begins with a recognition that we serve a God who speaks, who has something to say. God is not silent. He does not imagine that we'll just kind of guess what he's like. He wants us to know what he's like, and he tells us what he's like. It says the word of the Lord. And this word, the Lord here, the L being capitalized in most of your Bible translations, is a specific translation of a specific word in the Old Testament. When you are in the Old Testament and you see the word, the Lord, I want you to know it is translating a special 
and powerful word in the Hebrew language that it was written in. When you see the word, the Lord, you are reading a translation of the Hebrew word, Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh is the translation of that word, the Lord. It is the name that God gives for himself. God does not describe himself as a generic deity or God out there, but rather gives a specific name to his people. And when he's asked what that name is, that name Yahweh simply means, I am who I am. Or or another translation would be, I will be who I will be. In other words, what we're reading this morning is the word of Yahweh. The word of the one who is who he is. See, one of the most important contributions of the prophets for us is that they speak for God and declare who Yahweh is and who he will be. He is who he is. He will be who he will be. And here's why this is significant for all of us in this room this morning, because you need to understand this if you want to know our God. It's this, that God is who he is, and you don't get a vote. You don't. God is who he is. He describes himself as Yahweh. That's his name. And you don't get a vote. And here's what so many of us want to do. We want to reshape God into something that's a little more comfortable for us. So we hear about God's wrath and we go, well, I don't really want to believe in that. Or we hear about God's desire for justice and we go, well, that just kind of makes me uncomfortable. We hear about hell or what God's demand on our lives is. And we just kind of reshape God and go, well, I don't really like that. But here's the truth. What you like or don't like is irrelevant when it comes to God's nature. God is who he is, and you do not get a vote. I do not get a vote. Let me put it to you this way this morning. God's nature, his character, it's not a matter of tradition. So maybe you grew up hearing things about God, and now you're being challenged as you sit under the ministry of this church about who God is. And listen, all of us grew up believing weird and wrong things about God. But that does not make it so. God's nature is not a matter of tradition or your history. Listen, God's nature is not a matter of power. Like we do not believe God is whoever the powerful, the rich, the famous in our world say he is. We don't believe in God based on the word of someone who's rich or powerful or on television or in government. We believe in who God is based on what he's revealed in his word to us about him. God's nature is not a matter of tradition. It's not a matter of power. It's not a matter of opinion. You just go ask around. Everyone's got thoughts on God. Everyone's got opinions, and your opinion might be your opinion. Well, in your opinion, you don't think God should do this, and God just looks down and smiles and goes, I am who I am. I am who I am, and I'm not going to change. I'm not going to morph according to your opinion. Listen, God's nature is not a matter of feelings. Here's what I anticipate. I anticipate as we go through the book of Zephaniah, there are going to be times that we read things that do not make you feel good. When I say that, I mean that you're going to read things, and there's going to be something inside of you that goes, oh, that's what God. God's doing that. He thinks, he says, that there's going to be things inside of you. When I read through parts of the scripture, there's part of me that doesn't feel good about it. Here's the truth. God's nature is not based on how I feel about him. God is who he is, whether I like that internally or not. And then finally, God's nature is not a matter of popular vote. Like God can dwindle down the number of people who believe in him to a very small number. And yet who God is and what he is like is not a matter of how many people think he's a certain way. God is who he is and you do not get a vote. You don't get to vote. Here are your options. You can receive him. Like can you receive him for who he is, all of him for who he is, the parts you like, the parts you don't like, the parts that make you uncomfortable, the parts you love, you can receive him. You can reject him. 
I want you to know if you're in this room this morning or if you're listening online, you can reject God. You can walk away. You have that ability. But here's what you cannot do. You cannot reshape him into your own image. You cannot say, if there's a God, he must be just like me and agree with me on all things and agree with all of my perspectives on the world. If that's the God you believe in, you do not believe in God. You believe in a glorified version of yourself. What do we do? We can receive God. We can reject him. But we do not get to shape him into our image. Why? Because our God reveals himself as Yahweh, who is who he is. And we do not get a vote. Zephaniah begins with these words. It says, the word of the Lord. And then it goes on this way to say that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, king of Ammon, king, or son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, this is the part where for many people, as they're reading this part of the scriptures, their eyes glaze over because they're going, uh, there's a lot of people whose names end in uh. And I don't know who they are, and I'm not sure where this is happening. And that's understandable. Because again, the scriptures, this, this part, the minor prophets can be unfamiliar to us. We don't know the setting. We don't know what's going on. So let me help you pick this apart just a little bit. This is written during the reign of King Josiah. This is 2,600 years ago. This is written 2,600 years ago, and yet you're going to be shocked as we go through this series how much of what's written 2,600 years ago to a nation halfway across the world is relevant to us today. It's written 2,600 years ago. It is written to the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel divided into two parts, the northern part of Israel that gets destroyed by the Assyrians, and then there's the southern kingdom of Judah, which includes the capital city of Jerusalem. This is written to those people. And it is written to them before the Babylonian exile. In fact, Zephaniah is the final prophet who will speak to this city before it is utterly destroyed by the Babylonians in God's judgment upon the city. So here's why this is important. This is not just a little history lesson. The reason this is significant for us this morning is because we need to understand what we are reading this morning in Zephaniah chapter 1 is not God speaking to the whole earth and the whole world. It is what God is saying to his people specifically. Like this morning is not God's message to all of the nations and all of the people. What we are reading this morning very specifically is the word of the Lord to his people, to his people. And as we read this this morning, what I want you to see is that God is not speaking to others. He's speaking to his people. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to the faithful. And I want to show you the outline of what we're going to go through this morning. As we read through this text, it may be unfamiliar, you may lose your way at times, but here's the outline, here's the framework that'll help you get through this first chapter. Number one, we're going to see the problem. Number two, we're going to see the penalty. Number three, we're going to see the prescription. And number four, we're going to see the promise. Now, anytime a preacher uses all their points, starting with the same letter, you know it's going to be about a middle-of-the-road sermon, okay? Where's it going to go? But, but truly, this, this outline has helped me as I've tried to get my head around this first thing. Okay, yeah, there's a, there's a problem. Something's gone wrong. God is promising a penalty for it, but he's giving a prescription. He tells us something we need to do, and then he makes a promise for those who will do that thing. And so let's start verse 2. We're going to see the problem here that's going on from God's perspective. Verse 2, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will make every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to, the star, or to worship the starry host. 
and those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and also swear by Moloch. Those who turn back from following the Lord, neither seek him nor inquire of him. Verse 7. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On that day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the king's son, and those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I'll punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold and who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Verse 10, on that day, the Lord declares, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, all of you live, who live in the market district, and all of you merchants will be wiped out. All who trade in silver will be destroyed. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish those who are complacent, who, think like, who, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered. Their houses will be demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. Now, deep breath, right? Like that's a lot. That's like zero to 60 very fast, right? And we're into it. But again, if we step back and say, okay, what's the framework? What's the structure of this? What we're remembering is this. This is the word of the Lord to his people. And here's the problem. The problem is that God's people are walking in sin. Uh, Again, this week, we are going to look at God's word to his people Not to all the unbelieving people. We assume they're going to be walking in sin. To people who hate God and reject him and want nothing to do with him, the assumption is they will be walking in sin. This morning, what Zephaniah is going to lead us toward is God's word toward his people who are walking in sin. Now, as we review the verses we just looked at, here's the question. What are the sins of God's people? And there are at least three groupings we could kind of create as we've just read through that text. The first that you'll notice is the sin of idolatry. The sin of idolatry. What you'll see is three distinct gods or idols that are named that the people of God are worshiping. Like in other words, they love Yahweh, they worship him, and at the same time, they worship these other idols. It's syncretism, it's bringing together of these different religions. The three idols you'll see, the first is the God of Baal or Baal. This is a God of fertility in the ancient world, that you might have children. It is really a God of the false God of sex. The second you'll see is that they're bowing down, it says, to the heavenly hosts on their roofs. It's the worship of the idol, the false god of the moon and of the stars. And that is the god of power. In the ancient world, you can imagine nothing's more powerful than the moon and the stars and the heavenly hosts. They're worshiping power. And then the final god is the god, the false god of Moloch. Moloch is one of the most hated and detested idols and false gods in the Old Testament. It is an idol that would give you prosperity and wealth. But the way you got that prosperity and wealth is you would sacrifice your child through fire. You would sacrifice your child for future prosperity. It is the God of money, of wealth, of possessions and prosperity. And we see what the people of God are struggling with. They're struggling with idolatry. And isn't it interesting that their idolatry is basically the same as the idolatry going on in our culture, in our world, and maybe even in our hearts today. It is sex, it is power, and it is money. What are the people of God struggling with? One, they're struggling with idolatry. Number two, what are they struggling with? They're struggling with the sin of shamelessness. The sin of shamelessness. Why do I say that? Verse eight says, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons. Like in other words, the people who are worthy of God's condemnation here aren't people who are unknown. It's not happening in secret places. It's the officials, like high powered officials in the culture. 
And it is the king's son, it's royalty, who is sinning out in the open. And it says all those clad in foreign clothes, which is not some sort of knock on wearing clothes from another culture. It is a knock on adopting the religious practices of the pagan nations. But you'll notice something about clothes. Everyone can see clothes. They're walking around just completely unashamed that they are walking in idolatry and sin. It says, I will punish those, in verse 9, who avoid stepping on the threshold, which is kind of a hard thing to understand. We're not quite sure what that means, but we think it maybe has something to do with violence, just a total lack of care or respect for human life. And it says they fill the temple with their gods. Like they're not even trying to hide it. They're out in public. This is why we say it is the sin of shamelessness. It is what old preachers would call sinning with a high hand against God, shaking your fist against heaven and not caring who knows it. The people of God are walking in a kind of sin where they're sinning openly. They don't care who knows it. They're not trying to hide it. They are in open rebellion against the God of the universe. And then what's the final sin here? It is the sin of complacency. Yet You'll see here in verse 12, it says that God is going to punish those who are complacent. And how does he define complacency? He says, it's those who say the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Complacency is the place you get to where you're no longer trying to grow in the Lord. You're no longer trying to walk in holiness. You're kind of settled. You're good. Your time of really seeking after the Lord and trying to become more like him, that's over. And you're just coasting. You're complacent. You're leaned back. You don't feel like you need to practice the spiritual disciplines or lean into what God has anymore. That is the sin of complacency. So here's what we see from the people of God. The people of God, the problem is that they're sinning. And their sin is defined as idolatry. It is shamelessness. And it is complacency. And here's the question that the rest of the chapter is going to answer. What does God have to say when his people walk in unrepentant sin? What does God have to say to a people who are sinning in such a way that they don't even care who knows it? They're complacent. They're fine with it. They're walking in sin and idolatry, and nobody seems to be bothered by that anymore. The rest of the chapter is going to give us a stark answer to that question. Verse 14 says these words. It says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all the people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither the silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make sudden end to all those who live on the earth. We ask this question, what does God have to say to those who are walking in unrepentant sin? What does he have to say to his people who are trying to say that they love God, but are also just walking in a way that is completely contrary to what he has called them to walk into? And what we read here is, again, one of those difficult passages to read. We read this, and it seems so harsh and so intense. But let me just clarify it by just reading you verse 14 to summarize what God says. Verse 14 says this, The great day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. What's God going to do toward his people who are walking in unrepentant sin? He promises that a day is coming, and it is called the day of the Lord. The day of Yahweh. The day of the Lord is this phrase found all throughout Scripture. In fact, it's found 26 times in the Bible, this phrase, the day of the Lord. And here's what's wild. 
18 of those times are right here in the book of Zephaniah. So 18 out of 26 times the day of the Lord is referenced in the scripture is right here in the book of Zephaniah. So what is this day of the Lord referring to? What's God promising? Obviously, he's going to come. He's going to destroy. He's going to step in and bring judgment. What is this day of the Lord? I believe it means two things. Most immediately, I believe that he is telling the nation of Judah, if you do not turn and repent, I am going to destroy Jerusalem. I am going to bring my judgment, my wrath upon this city. And that is exactly what happens In 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem, the kingdom of Judah, is completely and totally destroyed, including the temple of God, by the Babylonian Empire. They come in, they destroy everything. This is where they take the Jewish people into exile. And from that day forward, the Jewish people have never fully controlled the land. This is the most devastating event in Old Testament history, is the exile of the people of God. So when God promises that day of the Lord, he's promising, I'm going to bring an immediate judgment upon you. But then also when we hear about this immediate judgment, that's the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy. But then there is a final fulfillment of that prophecy. That throughout the scripture, when we see the idea of the day of the Lord, it is where God decisively brings human history to a close. And we as New Testament Christians living after the resurrection of Jesus Christ know that that means the return of Jesus Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead. The immediate fulfillment is the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah by by the Babylonian Empire. The final fulfillment is that Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. That God brings that judgment upon those who are walking in unrepentant sin. So again, we go back to our outline for this chapter. This is the word of the Lord to his people. The problem is that God's people are walking in unrepentant sin. They're walking in sin. And what's the penalty? That God is going to judge his people. That God is going to pour out judgment upon that sin that he will not tolerate it forever. Now, if you have been listening over the last six weeks here at Calvary, we just walked through a series on Romans chapter 8. And if you've been listening closely, what should be ringing through your mind right now is this idea that God is bringing judgment on his people. And yet what you should remember, the most, to me, one of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture, this sentence, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you go, there's no condemnation, but God's going to judge the sin of his people. Which is it? And I go, the answer is both. It's both. Because I believe on the authority of the word of God that there is no more condemnation for you that all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. You are fully and finally and forever forgiven in Jesus. To those of you who have trusted in him, you have no fear of wrath, no fear of condemnation, no fear of hell. There is no contradicting in saying that all of your condemnation has been taken away in Jesus, and yet God hates the lingering sin inside your heart, your life, and in our world. God does not love it. God wants that to be removed from you. And God would do anything to remove that from you. And here's what I read in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is gonna remind us, of course, God has taken away that sin through Jesus Christ. And yet in Hebrews chapter 12, verse five and six, it says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. 
So on the one hand, we want to say that all of our condemnation, all of the wrath, all of our fear of punishment and hell has been taken away on the cross of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we understand that God is going to discipline us for our sin, not out of punishment, wrath, and condemnation, but out of a desire to see us walk in holiness, out of a desire for us to walk in the freedom that his son died for. When we talk about the discipline of our, our, on our lives, we are not talking about his hate or his wrath or his anger toward us. In fact, it's this that God disciplines us for our sin, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. He disciplines us for our lingering sin in our life, not because he hates us, but because he loves us so dearly and he knows what sin will do, the havoc it will wreak in our life. God wants to free us from that. Like I'll put it to you this way. Um, the, the other morning I was hanging out with my three kids downstairs um, and they're running around and playing. And then just to give you an insight on some of the conversations that happen in the Howard house, um, suddenly I hear my five-year-old daughter shouting out, Daddy, tell Noah to stop drawing on my face. Again, those are the conversations that happen in my house. And so I look over and sure enough, my two-year-old son is drawing with a marker on my five-year-old's face. So I walk over and inform him very politely that you are not to draw with markers on your sister's face. Again, the conversations that happen in our house in the morning. But as I go over to discover that he has in fact been drawing on my five-year-old daughter's face, I realize that that is not the deepest problem that is going on here. Because in addition to drawing on his sister's face, he has also been drawing on his mother's couch cushions. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I come up to him and I, I find out this little bit of information. And, and in that moment, I, I just, I just, I got, I got to, I got to discipline this kid. I got, I got to discipline him. And then I try to get to his level and explain to him that it, it, it is not good for him or for me, for him to be drawing on our mother's couch, right, right, right. Like that is not okay for him to be doing. So what do I do in that moment? Like any dad would, I take away the pen. And I didn't just take away one pen, I took away the whole basket of pens. I put them on top of the fridge and he did not like that. He didn't like it one bit. He, he's just outraged at the injustice of it all that I would take away this pen from him. But, but why did I do that? Here, you know the answer, because you're not two years old. You know the answer is I took it away from him. I disciplined him in that moment, not because I hate my son, but because I love him. Not because I want his life to be miserable, but because I want him to learn self-control and discipline so that he can flourish as I would want for him, as any parent would want for their child. This is the same thing God does for us. So in your sin, there's no condemnation, there's no wrath, there's no punishment left. That's all been put on Jesus on the cross. But there is a hand of discipline in our life where God is willing to remove or put things or change our life in such a way that disciplines us to draw us out of our sin, to draw us out of the destructive patterns in our life not because your God hates you, but because he loves you. It goes on this way in chapter two, verse one. It says, gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and that day passes like windblown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. You know what I love about this little paragraph we just read? Three times in verse two, we see before, before, before. Like in other words, God always gives fair warning. God's not trying to trap you or surprise you or trick you or, or punish you in a way you didn't know was coming. He always warns us. And it's so simple. There's a problem that we're walking in sin. There's a penalty that his wrath or his judgment would be upon you. And then he warns you. He says, but it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't need to be that way. There's something you can do before that happens that could actually change the outcome. 
And we see that here in verse 3. It says, seek the Lord, all of you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. In other words, this is the word of the Lord to his people. There's a problem, and that's that God's people are walking in sin. There's a penalty, and that's God, God's going to judge his people. And then there is a prescription, something they can do. And that prescription here is to seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. In other words, God's people must repent of their sin. This is the invitation for the people of Judah. The invitation is for them to repent. God is calling them to turn from their sin. Now here's what we need to know with this word repentance. Repentance is not remorse. Remorse is just feeling bad about what you did. Repentance is not regret. Regret is just wishing you hadn't done something that already was done. See, repentance is not remorse. It's not regret. The picture I always have of repentance is I'm going in this direction. I realize I need to turn. I plant my foot in the ground. I turn and I go back toward the Lord. I go back toward God. Repentance is not regret. It's not remorse. Repentance is realigning yourself with God, his truth, and his way. You've been going in your own direction, going your own thing, and repentance is realigning yourself with God's truth and God's way. Uh, another way of putting it, I put it before, I love this way of thinking about repentance. Here's the seven words of repentance. The seven words of repentance are simply that God is right and I'm wrong. God is right and I'm wrong. This is what repentance is. In the New Testament, the Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia, which literally means a change of mind. When I change my mind, I'm going in this direction. I realize, wait, God isn't calling me to go in this direction. I plant my foot in the ground. I say, God is right. I am wrong. And I go back toward what he wants for me. This is what repentance is. And this is what God is calling his people, Judah, toward. He's saying, you're walking in sin. I'm going to judge that sin, but you need to repent. You need to turn. You don't just feel bad about your sin. You don't just regret doing it. You don't just feel icky or shameful on the inside. You actually turn your life around and you realign yourself with God's truth, God's word, and God's will. And then here's the final part of Zephaniah that we'll read this morning. Chapter two, verse three. It says, perhaps, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Perhaps. God, God doesn't owe you anything. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned your way to God. But the words of Zephaniah from the Lord to his people are, listen, God in his mercy might just shield you on the day of the Lord's anger. So again, here's our outline, and it completes here. What's the problem? The problem is that God's people are walking in sin. Oh, what's the penalty? It's that God's going to judge his people. Then he says, but before that happens, there's this prescription. There's a thing you can do. You can repent of your sin. And then there's a promise. You'll be sheltered. You'll make it out okay. God will prevent the things that are going to happen from happening to you. You'll be refreshed. You'll be made whole. You'll be made right. Things will be right in your life. There's a problem, a, prescription, or a penalty, a prescription, and a promise. This is the word of the Lord to Judah. This is the word of the Lord through Zephaniah to God's people living in Judah, living in Jerusalem at that time. But Calvary, here's what I want you to know this morning. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning too. This is a consistent pattern throughout the scripture, this pattern we see here in Zephaniah chapter one, that God recognizes the problem is our sin, the penalty is his judgment, the prescription is that we would repent, and the promise is that he would shelter us. This is the word of the Lord for Judah, but it is also the word of the Lord for Calvary Community Church this morning. 
And if I could boil it down to one thing that God is calling us to do, it is this. is that God is calling his people to repent. God is calling his people to repent. Now listen to me. I look around the world and I see all the same things you do. I am horrified and I'm outraged by, by the things we see in politics and, and in culture, on television, on social media, all of the things we see in movies and TV. I see all of this and I'm just outraged by it. And part of me wants to yell or scream or tell them to stop or call them to repentance. I want the world around us to change. We live in a culture that just seems to be completely upside down. And I want to see that culture restored and made whole. But here is what I'm convinced of, and I hope you are convinced of this too, that the church cannot restore the culture until we repent of our sin. That we cannot do it until we go first. We cannot call the world to repentance if we are unwilling to go first. And so what do we want to be, Calvary? In the Caneo Valley, let this church be the place that goes first, that steps into repentance before we call anyone else to repentance. Let us be a people who are marked for our repentance, for our holiness. As we started to develop this 2030 vision, this vision for what Calvary might be by the year 2030, where God was calling us to be, our leaders should put these words into our vision magazine. It says this, when we think about Calvary 2030, we see a day when the holiness of our church raises the curiosity of a watching world. Like in other words, we see a day when the holiness of this church makes people look at us, and even if they don't agree with us on everything, they go, those people are clearly different. And how do we achieve that holiness? How does that holiness brought about in us? It is that through faith we repent of our sin and we seek the Lord, we seek righteousness, and we seek humility. Calvary, what do we want to be? We want to be the church that repents, that turns from our sin, that leads the way in this community of being a church that turns from the wickedness in our own hearts, in our own lives, and turns back to the Lord. And so what's the call? The call is for us as a church to repent this morning. Now here's what I know. I know that with so many people in this room watching online, so many people part of our church, there are so many different things you may need to repent of. And, and I couldn't even begin to create a list that covers all of them. But may I offer you an incomplete list this morning for you to consider as the Holy Spirit does work on your heart. May I offer you 10 things you may need to repent of. These might not be the only things. Maybe some of them apply to you. Maybe some of them don't apply to you. But can I invite you to consider this this morning, that repentance wouldn't just be a good idea, but would rather be something we practice starting this morning in this church service. Here's 10 things you may need to repent of. Number one, like the nation of Judah, maybe you need to repent of your idolatry. If there is anything or anyone in this world that you are trusting more than God himself for your future, for your satisfaction, for your life, for your salvation, repent of that. There is nothing and no one who can do what only God can do in your life. And if you are trusting in your money, your connections, your power, your family, your, your attractiveness, your, your power, your skills, your talent, if you're trusting in anything other than God, I want to call you to repent of that today to be a person who repents this morning. Number two, maybe you need to uh, repent of your shamelessness. We talked about the people of Judah just openly sinning and they didn't care who knew it and they were all about that. In a room this size or for the people in the audience online, I want you to know that there might be someone who is just walking in shameless, unrepentant public sin and this morning I wanna call you to repent, to turn from that, to walk in that lifestyle no longer. Whatever that thing is that you're doing that you know is wrong and yet you persist in it anyway, to turn from that and run into the merciful arms of our Savior who welcomes you home. 
I want to call you to repent of your shamelessness. Number three, like the people of Judah, I want to call someone to repent of their complacency. I wonder if there are saints in this room who kind of gave up on praying years ago, gave up on leaning into holiness, gave up on spiritual growth, gave up on trying to learn new things and step into new spaces of faith. You just kind of got complacent. You just kind of got stale. Things just kind of got old to you, and you've been sitting in that. And I want to call you this morning to repent and turn back to a Jesus who says, I have so much more for you than you could ever possibly imagine. Number four, I want to invite you and call you to repent of the sin no one knows about. For some of you, there's sin going on in your life that your wife doesn't know about, your husband doesn't know about, your boss doesn't know about, your friend doesn't know about, that no one knows about. It's your little secret. It's your little part of life no one ever gets to see. And I want to invite you this morning to confess that and to repent of that and turn to a God who welcomes you secrets and all to repent of the sin nobody knows about. Number five, I want to call someone this morning to repent of your sexual sin and lust. We live in a culture that says your sexual sin, it's no big deal. Whatever you feel, whatever you want to do, just do it. As long as you're not hurting anyone, it's no business of anyone else, so it doesn't really matter. We live in a culture that takes sexual sin lightly, and I want you to know our God does not take sexual sin lightly. He calls us to something much higher, much better, much more beautiful. He calls us to purity. He calls us to holiness. And if you are walking in sexual sin, I want to call you to repent this morning and run into the arms of a Jesus who says, I love you. I died for you. Welcome home. I want to call you toward that this morning, that you might experience freedom and grace. Number six, I want to invite you to repent of your hate and discrimination. Calvary, if you hate Democrats... I want you to repent of that this morning. If you hate Republicans, I want you to repent of that this morning. If you hate Joe Biden or you hate Donald Trump or people who voted for either of them, I want you to repent of that this morning. If you hate people who don't look like you, talk like you, vote like you, um, eat like you, dress like you, live life like you, if you hate people who are different than you, if you hate people who don't go exactly the way you go in this life, I want you to repent of that. The world says to hate everyone who's not just like you. It says to hate your enemies. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus calls you toward a different kind of life. And if you have been walking in hatred of people who you think you're, are your enemies, I want to call you to repent of that and walk in the way of Jesus. Number seven, I want to call you to repent of your greed and selfishness. Jesus talks about greed as a deceiver. He talks about the deceitfulness of wealth. Like greed is one of those sins that no one ever thinks they have, but most of us probably do. Like greed is one of those things that almost no one is ever like, I'm a greedy person. But what happens is we just start to think all of our money is for me and mine, for my life and my comfort and my family and our lifestyle and what we want. And what the Bible calls us toward is to become an increasingly generous kind of person throughout the course of our life. And if that's you and your money has never been used and is not being used to bless and encourage and build up others, and I want to call you to repent of that greed, of that selfishness that says it's all about me. And number eight, I want to call you to repent of your pride and your arrogance. If right now you are going through something and you need help and you're refusing to ask, that is pride and arrogance. If your marriage is in trouble, if your business is in trouble, if you're addicted to something and you need help, if you're struggling with your finances and you're just too proud to ask for help, that is pride and arrogance. And I want to invite you and call you this morning to turn from that to repent of that pride and arrogance, to seek Jesus, and to seek the help you need. Number nine, I want to call you to repent uh, of your fear of the opinions of others. The scriptures calls this the fear of man. 
And for far too many Christians living in our time, we are so afraid of the opinion of people on social media, the opinion of people in television, the people in academia, the people who are influencers in this world. We're so afraid of being looked at as not cool that we change our beliefs and our behaviors to match it. And if that's what you are doing, if that is what I am doing, we must repent of that and turn back to the Lord. And then finally, number 10, we need to repent of our lack of trust in God. That if you have a habitual pattern in your life of not trusting and believing that God can take care of you and protect you and save you and walk with you, that the scriptures say that anything that does not proceed from faith is sin, and we are called to repent of this. Now listen, Calvary, um, this is my third time preaching this sermon this weekend. So this is my third time walking through this list of 10 things. And you would better believe that the Holy Spirit, every time I'm preaching this, is like, oh, that's you. Oh, no, no, that's, that's you too. No, 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 you, you need to stop preaching that and actually repent of that in your own heart. And so if right now you feel like the Holy Spirit is like stirring something up in you, if you're feeling this conviction over something, the scriptures say, do not harden your heart, but respond, respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing. The worst thing you can do right now is harden your heart and say, well, I don't wanna deal with that. No, we want to be a people who respond with repentance. And again, what are the seven words of repentance? is that God is right and I am wrong. My hope for you, whether it's something on this list or something totally different, whether it's sin that's really small or really huge in your life, my hope for you this morning is that you would have the spirit and heart of repentance, that you would turn from your sin and turn back toward the Savior who greets you and loves you with open arms, who says you are welcome home, you are chosen, you are holy, you are dearly loved. That's the invitation for you this morning. We're gonna have a time of repentance here in church this morning. Before church lets out and we go on to whatever's next of your day, we're gonna have a time where you have some time before the Lord. Our band is gonna make their way out onto the stage right now and we're gonna um, have a time of singing where you're gonna remain seated. And during that time, people aren't gonna be walking around or moving around or anything like this. I simply want you and me and all of us to do three things. Three things this morning. Number one, before the Lord your God, confess your sin. Tell him what he already knows. Tell him what's already true. Tell him what he already is aware of, and that is the nature of your sin. Be specific. Don't use euphemisms. Just say, God, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I'm walking in. Number one, confess your sin. Number two, during this next song, I want to invite you in your seat to repent of your sin. To say, God, when it comes to that, you are right and I am wrong. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm no longer going to walk in that sin but I'm repenting and I'm turning back to you. And number three, as you do so, with the third thing you do, be to remember the gospel. The good news of Jesus is simply this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That in the midst of our sin, while we were running the other direction, Christ never stopped running after us. And so when we repent and plant our foot in the ground and we turn back to Jesus, there is a God who has already been running toward us and he loves and forgives us. And how do we know this? We are reminded of the gospel every time we take communion. Like when we take communion as a church, Paul says this, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this morning, as we go into this next song, on your own, I'm gonna invite you to confess before the Lord, to repent of your sin, and then once you have done those two things, to take the bread on your own. And remember that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then to take the cup and remember that Jesus said these words, that this is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. 
you take this bread and you drink this cup and you remember that your sin is not sort of forgiven, mostly forgiven, someday forgiven. It is entirely forgiven right now in this moment because of the finished work of Jesus on his cross and in his resurrection. That is what you remember during communion. So right now as the song plays, my hope and my prayer is that Calvary Community Church would be a place that leads out on confession and repentance. But most importantly, that we would be a place this morning that remembers the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the God who saves sinners like us.